please take out your worksheets. Worksheet number nine, God's signature. The signature of God, worksheet number nine. We started looking last, last time we were together, at, last evening, about the, the law of God and how it's merely a transcript of his character, and that's the reason that Satan is so angry with it, because it doesn't just tell him what to do. It tells him who he is and that he is not God in his character. In fact, he's quite faulty. And oftentimes when people look at the law of God now, we become defensive about it because it points out our true condition. Just like a mirror points out exactly who we are and what we look like, the law does the same to us in a character sense, in a moral sense. It shows us our need. Now we're going to look at the signature of God, which is found right in the heart of his law. God has this unique way of doing things. And that's what I call it, the signature of God, because it's unique to him, only he does it this way. But God, every time God finishes a work, just like a master painter, any time God does a major work, he signs it with his signature. He puts his mark on it, his, his indicator, his seal right on the end, and he says, this is of God, God's signature. So what is that signature of God? How is it embedded in his law? to fill out what we talked about last time we were together, and what application, what implication does it have for our life today? That's the burden of our study tonight, God's signature. But before we do any further study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much that we can be gathered here together. Thank you that we can have the opportunity for just a few moments now to study your word. And Lord, we ask that you give us divine insight, supernatural wisdom beyond what the natural man can conceive. Lord, help us to clearly see you and your character and what you expect of us in return. So Lord, make us not only informed, but by your grace transformed into your image. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything, these opening sentences here, everything God does for humanity, he accomplishes through whom? Jesus Christ. We're going to study that in just a moment. But God's, God the Son, Jesus Christ, His role in the Godhead is to execute the will and the plans of the Father. So everything that God wants to do for us, He does through the person of Jesus Christ. Right? That's premise number one. And number two, every time Jesus accomplishes the task entrusted to Him, He signs His work with the signature of God. And God's signature, as weird as it may sound, is rest. Every time he finishes a work, he takes a little time off and has rest. And he marks that with his presence, his rest. Let me show you something. Let's go to John chapter 1. Let's back up the premise that Jesus is our creator. Not just God in a general sense, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our creator. So that when we read in Genesis 1, who created the heavens and the earth, we're talking about Jesus Christ himself. But let's prove that. Let's give evidence for that from Scripture. John chapter 1, that's going to be page 1025 in your pew Bible, starting with verse 1. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels are about Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. That's the good news that the Gospel is, is Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, the Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the what? word, and now notice carefully the tense of the verbs here, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you might have to scramble your brain just a little bit, but somehow this Word with a capital W, which Jesus Christ is the Word of God, can at the same time be with God, like side by side with with Him, and at the same time can be Him. Okay? Now, how is that possible? Well, very clearly, we'll just do a little, just a brief aside on this. When we say God, that's a big term. I know it's a three-letter word, but it's a big term. It's a lot loaded in there. And when you say God, you're speaking of both, of all three, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each of whom are individual persons with a different role, a different function, but all together they make one God. So you can have three persons united together as one in one God. And at first we might think, how in the world is that possible? That doesn't make any sense to the carnal mind. And my comeback is, well, yes, it does. God gave us a way to understand it. And that is when a husband and wife come together, the Bible says they become one flesh. Now, does that mean they walk around, they're absorbed in each other, right? they're like twins now, they're sucked up into each other physically, and they've got two heads popping out? No. It means they're one in purpose and commitment and unity and all that kind of thing, but they are still two individual persons. Okay? God the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God, just as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but he has a specific role to play within the Godhead, and that is to execute the will of the Father. So again, we can come back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, still speaking of Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And what does he do there in the beginning? Verse 3. All things were made, what's the next word? Through him. Now that's interesting. In the book of Revelation, I believe we looked at it already, but all the angel hosts are praising God the Father for creating, and by his will they were created, but the agent through whom they were created was Jesus Christ. You can also think of this, and we're going to come later back to this, but God's other great work for humanity is salvation. And Jesus Christ, when he was being that sacrifice on the cross, as he was looking forward to that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He said, this is the Father's will, and I'm going through with it because that's my job. So he's with God in the beginning at creation, and it says in verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So anything that was made, was made by Jesus. Is that clear? Anything that was made, was made by Jesus. Now, let's continue on. Go to Colossians, page 1133, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to see the same thing repeated, this time by the Apostle Paul instead of the Apostle John. They're on the exact same page about this. 11.33, Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. In speaking of Jesus Christ, he describes him this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And you might say, wait a minute, the firstborn, that means that he was the very first created thing. No, it doesn't. In the Bible, firstborn is a sign not of chronology necessarily, but of preeminence the one who's above the ones, right? So you have a bunch of children and the firstborn sometimes is the one who's very firstborn, right? But what they mean by that is their rank, their position. 
And you get that right in the text where it says the firstborn over all creation. Why does it say that? Well, it says in verse 16, for, or for this reason, for by him all things were what? Created. That are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So apparently, in the Godhead, Jesus Christ's role is creator. And that's not just on the earth, apparently also in heaven. Anything that is, is because of Jesus. Very clear. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So when we go back now to Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence in all the Bible, when it says, in the beginning... By the way, the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis are the only two books that start with that phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, based on what we just read in John and what we just read in Colossians, you could put in there which member of the Godhead created the heavens and the earth? Jesus Christ. Now, it was the Father's plan, and the Holy Spirit apparently also has a role, but Jesus Christ is the executor of the Father's will. In the beginning, God, that is God the Son, created the heavens and and the earth. Now, if we were to continue on, which we've, we've already covered this in a previous evening, but Genesis chapter 1 just goes step by step of how he created the world. And he starts with, let there be light. Right? And light is separated from darkness, and of course he sees that it is good, just like he does almost every day. Good, 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 good. And he starts to form the earth and then fill the earth. The first few days are forming it, giving it shape, separating the water from the water and giving the air, and then bringing forth the land and all the grasses and trees and things that cover the land. Then he starts to put animals in the water and the fish and the birds in the sky, and then you have land animals. And by the time you get to day six, everything is in place. Everything is fine. And now we go to chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 26, the very last day of the creation week. And yes, I say it's the last day of the creation week, even though I know that a week is seven days long. Okay? But the creating work of creation only took six days. Okay? And I'll show you this from Scripture in just a moment. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, after everything else had been made, the only thing was lacking was humanity. Then God said, let us. Again, another reference to the plurality of the Godhead. God is talking to himself which is really cool that he can do, okay? Let us make man, how? In our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the very last thing he does in the creation week, that sixth day, is to make man, man and woman, and set them over the earth to rule or to have dominion over it. Then we go to verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was in what condition? Very good. So... The evening and the morning were the what number day? Sixth day. And the chapter ends. That's the end of chapter one. 
And you can say, well, it's not a complete week yet. Well, it's a complete work week because all the work has been completed. He looks back and says, everything is done very, it is in very good condition. But now let's go to chapter 2. Thus, and it moves seamlessly into it, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were what? Finished. We haven't gotten to day 7 yet, but at the end of day 6, everything is done. Then we go to verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. So what work did he do on the seventh day? No work, right? Makes it very clear repeatedly that all the work was done on the previous six days. We get to day number seven, and God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Very clear, six days to work. And on the seventh day, God signs his work with his signature, which is rest. He doesn't doesn't move right into the next week. He sets a a chunk of time apart and just rests. Okay? Now, if that's all that we had, we could say, well, that's fantastic. We have six days to work and a seven day of rest. That's fantastic. That means that I can choose six days that I want, and the seventh day is going to be a day of rest. But notice what else the Lord does on the seventh day besides just merely resting. Watch what he does here that's different from the other days. Then, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day. Had God blessed any of the other six days? No. They were good, right? It's not like they were faulty. They were not, you know, in some way missing something. They were good, good, good. In fact, very good. But on the seventh day, the Lord blessed, then God blessed the seventh day. And that's not it. And did what? Sank it. You know, God's dwelling place on the earth was known as his sanctuary. In fact, he says he wants to make us holy, to sanctify us. Sanctify. That essay, in, uh, that, that sanctification, that means to make something holy. Right? Every other day was good. In fact, it was very good. But only one day did God rest and set that day apart as holy. And God sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So we go back to our fill in the blank here. In the creation of our world, Christ worked six days and rested on the seventh. He sets forth a pattern. Six days of work, one day of rest. Though he had called the previous days good, only the seventh day did he make holy. Okay, this is imperative to understand. It wasn't like there was a bad day in the mix. They were all good days. But the seventh day he sets apart as holy. He sanctifies it. And I really want to underline this point, the next fill in the blank. The Sabbath was instituted, that means set up, it was established, it was set apart as holy, before there was a single Jew, and even before man sinned. Right? Make this patently clear. How many Jews were in existence at this point? Not one. In fact, how many people were in existence at this point? Just two, right? They hadn't even begun to be fruitful and multiply yet. It's just the very original 
humanity, man and woman, male and female, as God had originally created them in their innocent state, before there was sin, you cannot say, well, the Sabbath was for the Jews. No, it wasn't. The Sabbath was long before any Jew walked the earth. And you can say, well, the Sabbath is a result of sin. We had to have a day to come apart to be with God after we had fallen, but that's not the case. Sin isn't introduced at all. The only reason it's holy is because God set it apart and called it his holy day. That's it. It has nothing to do with the Jews and it has nothing to do with sin. It's part of the original creation order. It's part of what God looked back and said was good, good, very good. In fact, he called that one holy. Now, let's continue. We see that the Sabbath being set apart, the seventh day of the week being set apart as the Sabbath, is coming all the way back from the very opening pages of Scripture, from the creation itself. But let's continue in the Old Testament to see it play out. Exodus chapter 5. Let me show you something. Exodus chapter 5. You know, God eventually does have a people on the earth after the flood. Uh, they, he raises up Abraham to be the father of the faithful. And of course, his lineage is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel, which was Jacob's new name, are come about. And God has a special people, a holy nation. And they, at one point became enslaved in the land of Egypt. And he takes them out of the land of Egypt and he reestablished them as his people, right? Now, in Exodus chapter 5, you remember the, you remember the uh, antagonist in the story of the Exodus. Uh, there was a, a king on the throne of Egypt and the king's title in Egypt was Pharaoh, correct? And so Pharaoh was, was holding under his thumb God's people and had held them in slavery for decades now, okay? Year upon year upon year upon year, after year after year, they had been in some very brutal, harsh slavery. And God used Moses to come in and bring about a reform amongst his people to recalibrate them to him and to take them out of Egypt and make them this holy nation to take them to the promised land, right? And he raises up Moses to have a message for Pharaoh. And that message is, let my what? People go. Let my people go. So Moses comes in from the wilderness and he meets with the leaders of the children of Israel who are in captivity, who are in slavery. And he starts to work a reform amongst them to say, you are chosen to be God's people. God wants you to bring you out of here. He wants you to be his own people, a special nation. And he starts working a reform amongst the people. And this reform apparently catches the eye of Pharaoh. And it's none too pleasing to him. He doesn't look and say, oh good, you're going back to your religious roots. Good for you. He doesn't like it at all. And specifically, there was one specific item he particularly did not like about their recalibration to the Lord's commands. And I believe that was the Sabbath that they were keeping. Exodus chapter 5. Notice this now. Exodus chapter 5. And verse 4. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their what? Work. What was his problem with these people? You have come in, Moses and Aaron, and all of a sudden the children of Israel are taking away from their work. You know, they are my slaves. They are my servants. They work for me. And you come in and all of a sudden they decide not to work. Hmm. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people back from their work? 
get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them what? Rest from their labor. He's like, you're bringing in all these reforms, one of which is rest from work. Now, I don't know if you know how the world works, friend, but uh, when you're a slave, you don't rest, you work. I can imagine Moses saying, well, that's a fine way that the world works, but I want you to know that these are not your people. These are God's people, and they're supposed to follow God's law. And one of the attributes, one of the things that God does is work six days and rest the seventh. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 we don't do that around here. And I can imagine Moses saying, that's why we should get out of here. Let my people go, says the Lord, right? Pharaoh does not like this at all. In fact, skip down to verse 8. And you shall, and, and well, let's just keep going verse 6. We'll just continue it. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make the brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. So he gives them extra work, basically implying, If you can take a day off, that means I'm not giving you enough work. Right? You shall no longer give the people straw to make their brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they, which they made before. You shall not reduce it. Right? So you would think they've been working seven days. Now they're only working six days, so they need to reduce it. And he says, no, 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 no. We're going to break them of this seventh-day rest. You keep the quota just as high, and you give them extra work. Verse 8. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are what? Idle. These people aren't working. They're just kind of sitting there, resting. Well, we'll fix some of that, he says. But they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. They're apparently bored. We'll give them more to do. Pharaoh is none too happy with this. Now, of course, you understand what happened with the the Exodus experience. The Lord did finally have his people let go, though it was against the will of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the Lord demonstrated his greatness with plague after plague after plague until finally the most tragic of them when the firstborn were killed by the hand of the Lord. Only those who were covered by the blood did the angel of death pass over. Thus, it was instituted the Jewish festival of Passover, looking back on that experience when they left Egypt at the Exodus. But notice this, on route to Mount Sinai, which is where, of course, the Ten Commandment law was handed out, the Lord continues to work this reform and teach his people about the Sabbath that had been instituted from the very beginning. Exodus chapter 16, we find this experience. Um, they have, uh, they have some hunger. The problem is they're going out through a desert, and the Lord begins to test them. First of all, you know, he has, they have to cross the Red Sea, and how can we get out of this? Well, the Lord provides a way through the Red Sea. Oh, now we're out of water. What shall we do? The Lord provides water. Oh, now we're hungry. We're going to starve. What shall we do? And the Lord provides bread for them. And this bread had a special name. Does anyone know the name of this bread? Manna, right? And it was delivered in a special way. It didn't come in a bread truck that the Lord passed around by, you know. They didn't tell them. What they did, the Lord kind of rained it like dew from heaven. So overnight it would come, and in the morning they would wake up, and there was the ground covered with this manna, which manna is the Hebrew word for what is it? 
You know, it was a new thing. It's this weird stuff. But if you go out, apparently what you're supposed to do is pick it up and pick up as much as you need. Every person goes, picks up your much. And whatever you can eat that day, you eat it. And apparently you can bake it, you can fry it, you can eat it raw, you can to- put it in a salad. I don't know what you can do with this stuff, right? Make a sandwich out of it. Who knows? But God gives them this special bread every single day. Well, almost every single day, right? Now, what would happen is some people would say like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go out on Monday, the first, uh, second day of the week, right? And I'll get a whole bunch of bread. I'll do it through the whole week long. I'll get five days worth or something. Or I'll go out Sunday, the first day of the week, and I'll get a whole basket full and I'll keep it for the week. That way I only have to work once. But what would happen? They would eat their full for the day. They would wake up and their basket would be full of stink and maggots and rotten manna. And nobody likes rotten manna, apparently, right? Now, so apparently this stuff was fascinatingly delivered. It wouldn't even be there by the afternoon. It would melt off during the midday, and so every morning you had to go get it. And he was teaching his people that you have to work every day. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But on the sixth day was the one day not only could they, but they must take up double. Because none would be offered on the seventh day. If you went out on the seventh day to gather manna, you would be A, doing it alone, because nobody else would be doing it, and B, you'd be doing it in vain because there would be no manna there, and you would go back to your tent and stay hungry. None would be given on the seventh day. Thus, you were supposed to collect double on the sixth day, and that's the one overnight that wouldn't cause the manna to rot. So you could collect double. In fact, you should collect double. You must collect double on that particular day so that on the seventh day, you would, you would have plenty of food, but you would not need to work. It's fascinating. Now, Look at chapter 16. What was the lesson of all this? Why would he do it in such an elaborate way? Why didn't he just give them a big bucket of food and let them have it however they want? Well, he was teaching them a lesson. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 26, says very clearly, Six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. What did he just call the seventh day? The Sabbath. Now, you will hear people argue, well, the seventh-day Sabbath, this was instituted at Mount Sinai with the commandments of God. Well, I want to point out very clearly that the seventh-day Sabbath was an institution established by God long before the children of Israel ever got to Mount Sinai. Okay? It started back with creation itself, and when they lost track of it, God started reteaching it under the, uh, under the Egyptian slavery, and they come out, and he teaches it very specifically here in Exodus chapter 16. And then when we go to Exodus chapter 20 now, just four chapters to the right, when they finally make it to Mount Sinai, the Lord gives them the Ten Commandments. These are the Ten Commandments we just roughly passed over last evening, which are the transcript of the character of God. It shows him who he is and who they need to be if they're going to be his people. In Exodus chapter 20, After it says, you shall have no other gods before me, in verse 3, and in verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves any carved image, then in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain, the final commandment that deals with our duty to God comes in verse 8. It's commandment number 4. And it says, what's the very first word? Remember. 
Now, friends, let me ask you something. Can you remember something that hasn't happened before? Of course not. You can only remember stuff that's ever actually occurred. Right? So God says, remember what? The Sabbath day to keep it what? When was it made holy? In creation, right? And no, he doesn't say, now behold, I am making a new thing. I'm giving you this new thing called a Sabbath. And I herefore make it holy. No, no, no. He says, no, no. Remember the Sabbath day. Remember what I previously established. And your job is simply to keep it holy. By the way, friends, only God can make something holy, right? I can't make this lectern holy. I can't make anything holy. I can't make this piano. I can't make you holy, that's for sure. I can't even make me holy, right? I need God to do all of that. Only God can make something holy. So he doesn't ask us to make the Sabbath holy. He simply asks us to reverence it and keep it holy and not defile it. Right? He makes it holy and he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And how do we do that? Verse 9. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And notice it doesn't say, six days shall you labor, but a seventh day is the Sabbath. He uses the definite article, the seventh day. There are those other six days, but this one particular day, the seventh day, not a seventh day of your choosing, but the seventh day of my choosing, is the Sabbath, and it's the Sabbath of whom? He doesn't say it's your Sabbath, and he doesn't say, and it is the Sabbath of the Jews. By the way, you can search the Bible high and low, you will never find the phrase, Sabbath of the Jews. You will find phrases like the feasts of the Jews, but you won't find anywhere where the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Jews because the Sabbath wasn't made for the Jews. The Sabbath was made for everyone at creation. He says, that's my day. That's the day I rested. It's my day. So he says here in the commandment, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. And it's not just you. Apparently, it's everyone around you, everyone that you have any influence over. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And why is he so strict on this commandment? Well, he says it very clearly. Verse 11, for, for this reason, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Right there in the commandments, he tells us where the foundation of the Sabbath is, and it's not the exodus from Egypt. He says it's all the way back to creation. The reason I want you to keep Sabbath is because I kept it then, and it's a given to you. Right? It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It always has been ever since the world was made. Now, what's fascinating about this is we go back to remember. When it says to remember the Sabbath day, the Lord doesn't, I know this sounds weird, but the Lord doesn't particularly help us with that. You know it would be easy to spot the Sabbath day if he gave us some sort of sign. Like if every seventh day on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, that day was, let's say, 30 hours long, right? 
if he somehow made a cycle where everything else was the same, the same, the same, but on the Sabbath day, that's a special day. It's a bigger day, right? Or what if he made it a better day, like weather-wise, so that every day, I don't care how deep into February we, we are, on the Sabbath day, it's going to be sunny and 72, right? Muskegon's like, I would love for that to be the thing, right? What if every Sabbath, like, all problems were fixed and the day itself was perfect? Well, we wouldn't have to remember it. It's, duh, it's the Sabbath day. It's clear, right? But if you notice, the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week is just as long as the third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I mean, they're all the same. You can't look. In fact, what's fascinating, if you go back to the creation week on day four, God made not just light, but he makes lights, plural. The sun, the moon, and the stars. And it says very clearly what they're for. For seasons, for days, and for years. But there is no astronomical sign. For instance, you can tell when a month goes by just by looking at the moon, right? It has phases, and it goes every month. Same thing, you know, when a day has a pass, you know, because the sun goes up and the sun goes down, the sun goes up, the sun goes down. And the Bible even says there was evening and there was morning, there was a first day. But there isn't an astronomical sign for a seventh-day week. Why is the week seven days long? Because God made it, period. And he simply says, what I want you to do is remember that I'm the creator and honor me as your creator by resting the same way that I rested. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. New, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, nor the cattle and a stranger that's within thy gates. And he says, why? For in six days God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Fascinating that the Lord gave us his expectation of Sabbath based on the simple fact that he made it. Now, this goes back to my thinking about creation. There was another thing in creation that was off-limits from partaking in simply because God said so. Remember the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Now, why was that tree off limit? Was it because it was toxic? No. Would you know by looking at it, oh, look at it, it's, it's like just weepy and sad and sickly and pale, oh, you know, it's a gross tree. Obviously, you don't want it. No, 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 no. In fact, the Bible specifically says that the, all the trees, including the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, were good for food and pleasing to the eye. You know why they weren't supposed to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because God said so. Bottom line. Do you love me enough to just simply keep my commandments? The same thing happens with the seventh-day Sabbath, that signature rest of God. So look, there's no astronomical reason. It's not a longer day. It's not a better day. It's not a bigger day. It's just the day I've set apart. Now, I know what's popular, but I'm not asking you to do what's popular. I'm asking you to do what's right. And he simply says, remember Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he tells us how to do it. Very, very simple. By the way, let's go to the New Testament. People might think, well, that's just the Sabbath. It's just an Old Testament thing. Let's look at the New Testament. Luke chapter 4. Jesus himself People used to wear those little bracelets around, right? WW to JD. What did it stand for? What would 
Jesus do? That's a great question. What would Jesus do? In fact, we don't even have to guess on this when we know exactly what Jesus did. You know, we don't have to speculate. It clearly says what Jesus did. Luke chapter 4, when it came to Sabbath keeping, what did Jesus do? Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Notice what it says here. Jesus begins his ministry right after he, uh, you know, triumphs over the devil in the wilderness of temptation, we find in verse 16, this recorded. So he came to Nazareth, and of course Jesus was born in what city? Bethlehem, but he was raised in what city? Nazareth, right? So he comes back to his, what for all intents and purposes is his hometown, if not his birth town. So he came to Nazareth, and the Bible says, where he had been brought up. And as his what? Custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. By the way, I like to, I like to point this out in this text. We often think, well, see there, Jesus kept the Sabbath, and that was his custom. But notice that Jesus didn't just go to church on the Sabbath day. He participated in church on the Sabbath day. Okay? Him getting up and studying and reading and being a part of the service was part of his custom too. Okay? And, but notice this. Apparently, Jesus grew up for 30 years keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. And when he gets up to be the Messiah, he doesn't come along and say, I am now the Messiah and let us change. No. What's he do? He just keeps going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day because it was his custom. That's what he does. It was a habit in his life. It was part of Jesus' life. He kept the Sabbath every seventh day. And mine, I tell you this. He continued this custom throughout his ministry, even though there were times. And in certain places, with certain people, he was not the most popular fellow to come to church. Right? And it wasn't because they looked down on him because of how he dressed. or They literally were not just giving him the stink eye. They were trying to kill him. Right? There were times when they would literally run him out of the church to throw him off a cliff. And you know what he did the next week? He went back to church. That's what he did. There should be a lesson in there for us, you know. You don't go to church for the people. You're not, the Sabbath isn't for people. The Sabbath was made by God, and it's to honor him, right? You go and do because he asks. Very simple. Very simple. Jesus had that custom since he was a boy, and he kept doing it right through his ministry. In fact, let's go to Mark chapter 2, uh, two page 970. Mark chapter 2. There's one book over. Mark chapter 2. And just to give a little context here, the Jews of his time had made the Sabbath not only a day of rest, but they had made it a day of burden. They had encompassed the Sabbath with so many non-biblical rules that they said you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. They wanted to define what work meant, and they said you can only carry so much weight on the Sabbath. In fact, it got so much that you couldn't carry anything in your hands at all. In fact, if you wanted to carry a handkerchief, you had to pin it on your clothes. So it was a part of your garment because you could wear clothes on Sabbath, right? But for instance, you couldn't cook food. You couldn't make a fire on the Sabbath. But of course, if they're thinking by this time is, well, all the Gentiles are lost anyway, so let's contract with one of them to come and light a fire in our house on the seventh day. So on Friday, they would go contract with some lost heathen anyway, right? 
and have them come in and make a fire. And Jesus said, you set of rules you've built around the Sabbath are ridiculous, right? And that got him in trouble too, right? Jesus got in trouble for all kinds of things when Jesus was trying to just live out and show what the law looked like fulfilled. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 2, in verse 27, it's in the midst of one of these dialogues where he lays out this beautiful principle. Well, it's all, where's verse 23. Give it a little, a little bit more context. Now it happened that when he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they, as they went with his disciples, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Notice they're walking on the Sabbath, and they're walking past grain, and they run their hand through it, and they squeeze their hand, and they get some pieces of grain, and they're eating. Now, we would call that eating, right? They called that harvesting, right? You're reaping. You're working on the Sabbath. See, this is what I'm saying. (laughs) The same reaction you have with, that's ridiculous. Jesus had it too, okay? Verse 24, and the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus, of course, comes back with Scripture, always comes back with Scripture, but he said to them, have you never read when David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathiar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave to some of those who were with him? So he goes back, what do you do about David? You love David, but he did the same thing, but worse than what we're doing. Right? So he lays down a little precedent from Scripture, but then he adds this principle. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for what? Man. And not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is an interesting word. Note, please underline, highlight, circle, put a star by it, put an arrow to it. That word man. It does not say the Sabbath was made for Jews. It said the Sabbath was made for man. And the Greek word used there is anthropos where we get our term anthropology, the study of humanity itself. All people, he said, the Sabbath was a gift given to everyone, not just given to the Jews. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now he goes on in verse 28, Therefore, the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ, is also Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, it was the Sabbath of the Lord your God who created But which member of the Godhead did the creating? Jesus Christ. And he said, the Sabbath is my day. And this is fascinating. We are not our own because God made us. Jesus Christ formed us in his image and built us literally from the ground up. Okay? And that's exactly why he owns us, because he has the patent. He's the one who did it. Now he looks at the Sabbath and says the same thing. I'm the Lord who was there and set it apart and made it holy. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's the Lord of us and he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So it makes it patently clear, by the way, which day is the Lord's day. The Sabbath. It's the day he rested on. He calls it his own day. He says, I'm the Lord even of the Sabbath. So again, we go to our fill in the blank. The word translated man is the Greek word anthropos, meaning all humanity. And since Jesus created or made both man and the Sabbath, he is rightly Lord of both. Ever think about this? Even if you don't accept Jesus' offer of salvation, he still owns you. 
because he made you to start with, right? When you give your heart to Jesus Christ to let him operate your life, you're twice his, right? The first time he gets you by rights, he owns you. And the same thing with the Sabbath, he built it, it's his. So Jesus can rightly say he's Lord of both things. And let's look at one more example in the New Testament, Jesus and the Sabbath. Jesus and the Sabbath, Luke chapter 23, page 1023. And what happens here at the death of Jesus Christ? Let's look at verse 42, Luke chapter 23. I'm sorry, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Which means that Jesus at this point did what? Died, right? Now, what to do with this body? What to do with... Well, let's go down to verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph. This is not Joseph, the father of Jesus. He had died long ago, but... This was Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea of the city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever been laid before. Now, this is the important part. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. So what day of the week did Jesus die on? Friday, the sixth day of the week, and the Sabbath was drawing near. Now, verse 55 continues, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So they followed this man Joseph to the tomb where he laid Jesus, and they took note of which tomb it was and where he had been laid. Then They returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, but they didn't go and put those on the body of Jesus yet. Why? Because the Sabbath was coming. And they rested on the Sabbath. Why? According to the commandment. Because they keep the commandments. These are people faithful to God. By the way, Jesus has died on the cross, and people might say, well, Jesus nailed the commandments to the cross. Jesus just died, and the very first thing they do is keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Now, I want to bring in the deeper point here. Notice that not only are they keeping the Sabbath, but Jesus is now keeping the Sabbath, right? He has entered into his rest. He has literally been laid to rest. And every time God does a work for humanity, He signs it with the signature of God, which is rest. He is our creator, and when he was done with that process, he rested on the seventh day, signing the name of God to it, sanctifying it, which only God can do. When he had completed the work of redemption that he came to this this earth to do, after he cries out, it is finished, he breathes his last, and he's laid to rest in the tomb. Of course, he gets up Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, and goes to work. But on that seventh day, he rests 
from his labors. Now, people will sometimes ask the question, well, how do you know that Saturday, you know, that's a long time ago, that's 2,000 years ago, how do you know that Saturday is the actual Sabbath? Well, turn around and ask those people the same following questions that are in a shaded fill-in-the-blank box here. The day that, the, the, the common Christian holiday that people observe on the day on which Jesus died, they have a term for that. They call it good, what? Good Friday. Okay? Now, also the day that Jesus rose from the dead and, and resurrected, they call that Easter Sunday. So, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, what's the one day in between those two? Saturday, right? And that's the day that Jesus rested from his work of redemption. It's fascinating. By the way, after the cross, people will say, yes, yes, yes. But Jesus did nail that old ceremonial law, which I want to make very clear. The Ten Commandments are not the ceremonial law. They are the moral law. Okay? No one who ever says, I've yet to meet someone who claims that the ceremonial law was done away with and thus the Sabbath is gone, ever think that any of the other nine commandments are done away with. Right? For instance, especially when it comes to their spouse. Very few people would say, therefore, adultery is okay now. Because that old law was done away with. And they won't let me steal their car because that law hasn't been done away with. In fact, you go down the list. Can I dishonor my parents now? No, you can't do that. Can I covet my neighbor's thing? No. Can I kill? No, you can't do that. Can I, do, can I take the name of the Lord God in vain? Oh, you better not do that. Can I make a graven image? No, you can't do that. Can I break the Sabbath? Oh, sure, you can do that one. Why? Oh, that's part of the ceremony? No, it's in the heart of the moral law. It's number four, right in the middle of it. God signed his name right in his own law. And it's fascinating. The one commandment that says, remember, even the Christian world says, ah, forget. What happened? God hasn't changed. Perhaps we have. Matthew chapter 24, after the cross, by the way. Jesus is looking into the future. We're going to wrap up here shortly. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is looking into the future, and again, remember the disciples have asked him about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is around A.D. 30, uh, about A.D. 31, 30, 31. And Jesus is looking into the future, about 40 years in the future, with the destruction of Jerusalem. And notice what he says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 24, page 960. He says, and pray, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem that would be coming some 40 years later, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the what? Sabbath. So 40 years after his death, he's still assuming people will be keeping the Sabbath. Very clear. Very clear. We could go through all these texts, but we don't need to right now. Starting in Acts chapter 13 and on through the book of Acts, you can find where repeatedly the Apostle Paul, when he would enter a new town, he would go to the synagogue and preach on the Sabbath. And you could say, well, yes, but that's just where the Jews were meeting. Well, you look at the content of his message. Never once does he get up and say, Jews, I have a new message for you. That old Sabbath is done away with. Let's come back here tomorrow and worship on the right day. Never. In fact, there are occasions, you can read them in Acts 13, Acts 17, and on and on, in the book of Acts, where they would come to him and ask him, these Gentiles, they'd say, oh, we're so amazed by your message. When can we come hear you again? And he would say, come right back here next Sabbath. Right? 
it was commonly understood and continued to be kept that the seventh day was the Sabbath all throughout the New Testament. In fact, let's take it one step further. Go to Isaiah chapter 66. Page 724 in your pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 66. Even after this heaven and this earth are passed away, the, a new earth is created. Look what the Lord God promises. Isaiah 66 Right there at the very end, verses 22 and 23. It says here, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one, what's that word? Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. He's looking to the new heavens, the new earth, after the whole sin experiment has run its course, the universe is reestablished, and what are we going to be doing then? Keeping the Sabbath. It goes from creation all the way through the cross into the New Testament church and into the future, into eternity. We're going to be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. There is no mention anywhere in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that the Sabbath was changed, it was the solemnity was shifted, or the days were realigned. Anything happened to change the seventh-day Sabbath at all. So the question might be on your mind, if the seventh day is so clearly the Sabbath from Genesis to Revelation, there's not one iota of a hint of changing it. How come all Christians, or almost all, the vast majority, the overwhelming group, don't keep the seventh-day Sabbath. How come there's been a change in their thinking? Where did this change come from? Well, the Bible tells us that too. We've already studied it once. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If the Bible is so clear, if the law of God has not changed, and it's right there, he signed his own name. In the law of God, how is it that there's been a change? Where did this change come from? Well, it comes from the Antichrist power. Daniel chapter 7, notice verse 25. What the Bible says that the coming, from Daniel's perspective, the coming Antichrist would do. Page 865 in your pew Bible, Daniel seven twenty-five. He shall speak pompous words against whom? The Most High. He shall persecute the saints, of whom? The Most High. And then it says, and shall intend to change times and what? Law. So there was going to be a change in God's law attempted, but it wasn't by God. And it wasn't by His representative on earth, Jesus Christ. It was by God's enemy and His representative on earth, the Antichrist who would attempt in an effort to persecute and oppress and distract and deter and get people away from God, he would make a whole different law, a change in God's law. And it's fascinating. And that's what we see in the world today, exactly as the Bible outlined it. Now, Satan's ultimate aim is to be worshipped as God. That's been his thing from the very, very beginning. You have the text there in your worksheet, but I'll just remind you of it. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14, I will exalt myself, Lucifer said in his heart in heaven. For you have said in your heart, I will exalt myself above the th stars of God. I will ascend into the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. When he came to Jesus, 
in the wilderness of temptation, what's the one thing that he wanted from him? He wanted to be worshipped as God. He said, I'll give you the whole world if you just do one thing, worship me like God. And it's interesting, there's one commandment that outlines how we worship the true God as God, which is the seventh-day Sabbath, which has, again, no astronomical symbol. It just says, I'm God, my word says so, trust me. And that's the one commandment the Christian world has somehow gotten confused about. And I believe that it's because the change that the Antichrist has attempted to make in the law of God. But the good news is, not everyone will be taken in. Let me close with these last two passages from the book of Revelation. Page 1183, 11, uh, 1183, Revelation chapter 14, and verse 7. At the very end of time, there will be a people, apparently, who are going to go back and start being faithful to God's law, every bit of it. And at the time of the judgment hour, which we're going to be looking at in, in detail in, in nights coming up, but a message would go forward, starting with verse 6, that the Lord wants the world to hear. And it says this, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Now we've seen that in Daniel chapter 7, that there would be a judgment in heaven. And at that time, a message would go forward, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And how do you fear God and give glory to Him? The text tells us, Worship Him who, what? Made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Which, by the way, little interesting side note, the longest direct quotation from any other Bible book in the book of Revelation is right there in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Where did this language come from? Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 8, the Sabbath commandment. God's true worship is exactly as he outlined in his Ten Commandments. And he says, if you want to truly worship God, worship him the way that he has asked. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, just a page or two back, says that there will be a people on the earth. Verse 17, that the dragon which is Satan is enraged with. He can't stand these people because he can't shake them from fidelity to God's word. It says simply, verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and the woman always represents a what? Church. Enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And these are the ones who are known to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Apparently, at the very end of time, Satan's going to be so enraged because there's at least one strain of this woman, one bit of her offspring, one piece of the remnant of her seed, who will not go along with the proposed change in God's law because it's not found anywhere in God's word. They just simply keep the commandments. You know why? Because God said so. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said it so sublimely. It's right there at the end of the review. If you love me, do what? Apparently, the sign of loyalty that God is looking for is commandment keeping. Now, again, no interest in legalism. He doesn't say, if you want me to love you, you keep my commandments, right? 
No, no, no. He says, but if you actually do love me, the result of that is to keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's summarize it here. Keeping the Sabbath far from being a legalistic burden is an active demonstration of living faith. If you love me, keep my commandments. Has tonight's message been clear? Okay, from Genesis to Revelation, the seventh-day Sabbath is absolutely the signature of God's existence. It's the signature of his work. He signs it every single time. And friends, that Sabbath hasn't changed. So I'm going to make a special appeal tonight. And it's not going to be to come down front. It's not going to be to stand. I don't want you to do anything like that. But I want you to make a thought. I want you to promise me one thing. If this has stirred you, for instance, if it's been clear, that's great. And you might disagree, but at least you understand what's been said. But if beyond clarity... If there's conviction that this biblically sound, then I'm going to appeal to you not to come down front, but to come back here and worship with us this coming Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. Okay? And to help incentivize, to sweeten that deal just a little bit, we're going to be having our, one of our meetings, Sabbath morning, at, at 11 a.m. right here, same place, but not just having a Saturday night meeting, but we're also going to be adding a Sabbath morning meeting at 11 a.m. so that you can get accustomed to, hey, this is the Lord's day. This is how he said to keep it. And we've got more information to come. So this is going to be one of our nights, but I'm going to make a special appeal to you. I'm talking about it now because you've got to, I don't want to come on a Friday night and be like, tomorrow's the Sabbath. I'll see you tomorrow morning, right? It's kind of not nice. But take the next few days. Think about it. Review the material. Pray about it and see if the Lord is truly convicting you that the seventh day is the Sabbath. And if you come to that conviction, why don't you join us for church right here this Sabbath morning at 11 a.m. Does it make sense what I'm asking for? All right. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. It's incredible how the world has turned that around to see if you keep rest, you must be trying to work to get your salvation Lord, we're not trying to work to earn your love or to get into heaven or to merit salvation. Lord, the Sabbath has nothing to do with legalism, but we do want to demonstrate our loyalty to you. So, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to stand for the right though the heaven falls and help us to demand a clear, thus saith the Lord, for anything that goes on. Lord, it's clear in your word that the seventh-day Sabbath was established before sin. It'll be there after sin and all during the middle. And Lord, we want to be faithful to what you've asked us to do. So I especially want to pray for those who are going to be going home and thinking about this. I ask that you send the Holy Spirit in a very special way to speak to their hearts, to open their mind, to review the material, to go back to your word and see if what has been presented is true. And if it's not just clear, Lord, I ask that you would give it conviction in their heart. And that this Sabbath morning, we can keep the seventh-day Sabbath as you have asked not out of legalism, but out of loyalty, because we love you. We want to keep your commandments. To that end, Lord, keep us faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.